This morning, we're going to be in John, mostly in John chapter 8. Our passage starts at the end of chapter 7, verse 53 there, but mostly it's in John chapter 8, the first 11 verses of that chapter. And the story that we come to as we walk step by step through this ancient story, uh, ancient collection of stories about Jesus and what he did and what he said, the story that we come to this morning is one of the most familiar. Chances are, if you're familiar at all with any of John's stories, this is one of the ones you've heard before. It's a story of a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and brought to Jesus as a trap for him to try to get him between a rock and a hard place. It's one of the most familiar stories in John, but perhaps it's the most unusual story in John at the same time. The reason it's unusual is that despite the fact we've all heard it probably and are familiar somewhat with it, most scholars agree that it doesn't belong in John at all. That it's been inserted into the book that we have today much later by mistake. Now I want to spend, it's an unusual story, an unusual situation to come to in the scriptures. And for that reason, I I think my treatment of it this morning, our consideration of it together this morning has got to be a little bit unusual. Normally, we just launch into it and try to understand its details. I think these passages like this one are so rare, where there's a question about whether it belongs, that when we come to one, the rare times that we come to them, we need to to sort of put it on the table, acknowledge that it is what it is, and, and explain something about why it represents a problem and how we can still learn and benefit from it. So that's where I want to start this morning. I want to start even before we read this story. I want to start this morning by explaining to you a little bit about what makes this story a problem for us. A problem that we have to address if we're going to get into the details of it. And then once we've done that, I want to dive into the details because it is a beautiful story that helps us to taste the sweetness of what Jesus did and what he said. It helps to bring to life things that the New Testament teaches all over throughout its books. So so first let me describe the problem. Then we're going to get into the story and what we can get from the story this morning. So so here's the problem. The problem comes the problem comes from a, a dis, has been recognized by. Let me start that over. The problem has been recognized by a discipline that we call textual criticism. Textual criticism. I realize that might be a new term for you guys. It's just what New Testament scholars use to describe the process of collecting as many different copies of the ancient text as possible and then sort of working through them to see how they match up with each other. The process works something like this. And then, or let me back up even one, further, one step further. The reason we need a process like this is that in the days before there were you know, word processors and cloud storage and copyright laws, the way, that you, the way that you transmitted ideas on paper was you copied them. So somebody would write a letter, and if they wanted to hand it and circulate it around, well, somebody else was going to have to take it down, word for word, copy it back out. Now, the Bible is one of the most remarkable books. Actually, I'm going to just go ahead and make this claim. The Bible is the most remarkable book on this front in in all of human literature because it has literally thousands of copies that are more, more, uh, more ancient than any other of the ancient literature that you might turn to from the, from the Greeks or the Romans. And that's kind of a blessing and a curse in some sense. The Bible has thousands of copies, some of them little fragments, some of them bigger chunks, some of them scrolls, some of them little pieces of papyri uh, that that have been buried in sand for thousands of years. They're all different, but they 
there's so many of them that you compare them together and inevitably there are mistakes. Because these guys are probably doing their best. You know, they're trying, to, they're trying to write it down word for word. But there's a lot of words to copy. And sometimes the word divisions weren't always clear. They tended to write all crammed in together. So one word just runs straight into the next one without punctuation or without spaces. And sometimes people made mistakes. So the, the cost of having so many texts that are ancient, that have been found, that we can compare together, is that some of the, sometimes there's discrepancies between them. But the payoff, the benefit of having so many texts, is that it becomes pretty easy to recognize which ones were right and which ones weren't. There are certain criteria that scholars have developed that make it, I mean, they're really common sense criteria that make it pretty clear which ones were original. And the consensus out there is that in, in more than 90%, for more than 90% of what we have in the scriptures, it is obvious that what we have is the original, that as it was written by the first person to write it, as it was inspired by God. That said, there are some times where in some cases, one, one word or two might be different. Or in the case of the text we come to this morning, in some very rare cases, a whole story gets plopped into a book where it may not belong. Now, that's the discipline. Let me describe for you why, why the scholars who do this for a living, the ones who believe in the authority of the Bible and the perfect word of God, inerrant and preserved by God for our good, by, by scholars who hold those convictions about the Bible, say things like this guy, Leon Morris, that the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the gospel. That's Leon Morris, one of the stalwart evangelical scholars of the New Testament. That's what he says. Here's why he thinks that. A few different reasons why this story probably did not, does not belong in John. The story, for example, is absent, it's missing from all of the oldest manuscripts of John. The first time this story shows up in a copy of John's gospel is 400 years, a text that's dated 400 years after it was actually written. That's the first time it shows up. Here's another reason. It's not cited, I think this is a big one, it's not cited in any of the earliest commentaries on John. So John was immediately accepted in the church as a, as a precious, crucial description of what Jesus who he was, what he said, what he did. So immediately, the scholars of the church, the sort of what, what we call the church fathers, the guys who were, who were disseminating Jesus' teaching to the public throughout the church, immediately they start writing about this gospel, trying to understand it better, trying to help people ex- how explain it to them and help them understand it. So they write these commentaries on it. And none of the earliest commentaries mention this story. They go straight through John chapter 7, verse 52, what we talked about last week, and then they jump into John chapter 8, verse 12. That's, what, that's the one they had. They didn't have this story. The flow seems broken. It's another reason. If you jump from John chapter, 57, John chapter 7, verse 52, to John chapter 8, verse 12, it's nice and seamless. Makes sense. You can see how it would have been written in that, with that flow originally. This story seems to kind of come out of nowhere. There's another reason. The earliest manuscripts that do include this story, remember I said there's 400, it took 400 years for it to start showing up. The earliest ones that have it, have it in all different places in John. There's several different locations. So you should be reading along, and, and, and some it's, it's really early in the book, some it's towards the end, or some it, it's in the middle where we have it here. 
But the fact that it's moving around shows that it was this story people loved. They wanted it to be told. They thought it was true about Jesus, but it didn't really have a nice, seamless home. And so it was sort of scattered about, around in, in the gospel, depending on, on where the, the copyist thought it would fit best. And here's, here's the last thing I'll say. There's the last reason that, that scholars don't think it belongs here at this place in John. The language used in the story, in the original, it won't come out in English, in the translation, but in the original language, it's a very different language than the rest of John. John has his own set of words that he uses a lot. He has a very simple style that he writes in, in the original Greek, and it's real consistent from the beginning of the book all the way to the end. But then this one story, it's like somebody else wrote it. It's just a different set of vocabulary. And here's an example of what I mean. This is an extreme one, right? But you'll get the point, I think. Imagine you're reading Shakespeare, and Hamlet is saying things like, to be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing in them. And then at some point, Hamlet turns to his friend Horatio and says something like, OMG, you're like seriously my BFF. (laughs) What almost certainly happens in that situation is that someone else from a different time, using a different vocabulary, has plugged in a line that seemed to fit the story. You know, if if it had been written hundreds of years later, that's the kind of thing Hamlet would have said to Horatio. (laughs) But it doesn't fit. It wasn't written by Shakespeare. It's similar here. It's not not quite so extreme, but just words and language that John just doesn't use. Different guy wrote it. Pretty Pretty much certainty that someone else wrote this and it's been inserted here. So what do we do with it? You know, when you're coming along in the in the in the book of John, and it's here, and it's been here for centuries, and the church has been using it and teaching from it and being encouraged by it. What are you supposed to do? You, you skip it, or do you, do you try to understand it? Well, you guys know what choice I've made. Uh, we're going to try to understand it, and here's why. Here's why I think, even though it doesn't belong in this gospel, it's worth our time, it's worth our attention, and worth our submission to its message. Evangelical scholars seem to believe that the story actually did happen. And the reason they believe that is that besides being plugged in here to John, besides circulating and landing in these various places, there's actually a couple other records of it in some of the ancient documents of the church. It was, it was widely spread. It was, it was embraced early as something that helps us understand who Jesus is. Another reason is that, is that it rings true to experience and to what we know Jesus said and did. Most importantly, there's nothing out of step in this passage with other portions of the Bible. When you understand it, it rings true to the rest of the things we know about Jesus. So there's good reason to believe This story represents an accurate historical account of something Jesus did and said. And at the very least, what this story does is it brings to life in a vivid and beautiful way something we know was true about Jesus because the New Testament all through it is telling us things like this about Jesus all the time. So I'm going to walk through the story, help bring to life its details, and then at the end of it, I want to point to three things that we know about Jesus from the rest of the New Testament, from from texts that we're really sure about. 
that this story helps us to taste better, helps us to see and savor in a way that we might not be able to if we weren't carefully looking at this story. That's where we're headed this morning. I want to start with the story, and I want to read it for us. So now, if you found that, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word as I read from John 7, verse 53, all the way through verse 11 of chapter 8. This is the Word of the Lord. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You may be seated. I want to unpack this story in several different layers, uh, beginning with the trap set for Jesus by the Pharisees in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 8. I want to make sure you understand why the trap was so well designed, why they thought this could get him. Jesus is teaching the temple, and the scribes are the experts. These were the scholars of the law. And the Pharisees, their buddies, bring to Jesus a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. How she got caught is not explained. But she was caught, and the law of Moses was clear about what to do. The penalty for someone caught in adultery with multiple witnesses seeing the act was death. They thought in taking this to Jesus, they would get him trapped in a sort of lose-lose, rock-in-a-hard-place kind of situation. And here's the reason they thought the trap would work. If Jesus says, we should not stone her, which they thought he would probably say, because he was known for his message of forgiveness and grace and freedom. If Jesus says, let's don't stone her, well, then they could say, Jesus doesn't value the law of Moses. Do you really, people, really want to fall in line behind a guy who doesn't, who doesn't venerate Moses? Moses is everything to us. He is our identity. If we went with the law and ordered her killed, on the other hand, Jesus goes with the letter of the law and says, yep, she's got to die. Well, then... Jesus is going to look like a hypocrite because he's been going around the countryside talking about forgiveness and freedom that he's come to bring life, talking about new birth where you can be made brand new no matter what you've done. His message is going to look a little bit hypocritical now if he, if he insists that she die. But even bigger than that, Jesus himself could be killed by the Romans 
for taking on, him, taking on himself an authority they had reserved for themselves. So in Roman law, they were the only ones. The Roman officials were the only ones who could kill someone. Capital punishment was their responsibility and theirs alone. They protected it ruthlessly. So it's why you see when the, uh, when, when the trial of Jesus goes the way that it goes later in this book and in the other Gospels, the Jewish leaders don't have the authority to kill him. They have to take him to the Romans. It's not just the high priest who passes sentence. They take him to Pilate because the Romans are the ones who had the power to kill him. So if Jesus says, yeah, go out and stone this woman, well, then the Romans are going to be coming for him. He's going to be seen for what they were already kind of preconditioned to think about him, which is that he's come to establish some sort of revolution. He's come to get rid of them and install a a Davidic-era sort of kingdom of Israel based on the law of Moses. They think they've got him cornered, in other words, and it seems at first blush that they're right about that. But Jesus turns the tables on them. The next layer of the story is, the, is, is crucial to see. Jesus turns the tables on them. They've come to him with this, with this case, aiming for him. He is their target. They want to eliminate him. He takes the situation they brought to him and turns the focus back onto them and uses it to expose in them a deeper, fundamental lack of care for the law and ultimately lack of love for God. Here's where we see it. This woman is guilty. But immediately, the way the story is told, we're drawn in to sympathize with her and to see the evil in these would-be guardians of morality. What we see quickly, I mean immediately, is that this law is only a means to their ends. They don't really care about it. They want to use it. Here's, for example, here's one reason we know that's what they're doing with this law. That they don't care about the law. They just care about what they can get out of it. Where's the man? You can't commit adultery by yourself. Yet the man's nowhere to be found. If they witnessed the act, they saw two people. Where's the man? Now you could say that he got away somehow, but that just seems really unlikely. What seems much more likely is that the Pharisees are using this situation to pin Jesus to a wall, and therefore maybe they even set it up. Maybe they got the guy to entrap this woman so that they could catch her. Clearly they had to be somewhere around when this private act is going on. That just doesn't happen. They set that up. They don't care about the law. If they did, they would stone the man. Where's the man? They don't need him. That's the point. They've got what they need. And they don't care about her. They don't care about the law. They care about themselves. Here's another reason. Another another layer here that exposes their lack of commitment to the law. They are misusing it. They are misusing it as a way of establishing a difference between themselves as law keepers and this woman as a lawbreaker. They have assumed that they are innocent. Their response to this woman's sin, again, the woman's sin is not really in question here. She's been caught. It happened. Jesus doesn't question it. The, the, the storyteller doesn't question it. She's guilty. 
But what Jesus really is interested in is exposing what this woman's guilt has done in the men who have brought him, brought her to him. What, what her guilt has done in them has made them feel better about themselves. They come to Jesus as the would-be protectors of the law, as the holy ones who are above the sin that this woman has committed. They're using the law to feel better about themselves. Now, if, if they were keepers of the law and ultimately loved God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, if ultimately they loved each other like they loved themselves, then when they saw someone breaking God's law, they would be heartbroken. They would see in it an offense against the God that they loved. They would see in it a broken life, a woman in shambles, shamed by this activity, and they would hurt for her. They would long to see her set free from whatever it was that led her to this condition. But instead, what these Pharisees show when they bring this woman to Jesus is that they love that they've caught her. They love that she is who she is because it's her being her that lets them know they are what they want to think themselves as, that they are holy and above reproach. They'd miss the point of the law. The point of the law is meant is, is to emphasize this great gap between the holiness of God who made us, who has a right to full allegiance from us, to absolute obedience, the gulf between God and His holiness and us and our sin, and that that gulf is unbridgeable, that that gulf means death unless God does something to substitute for what we deserve. That's the point of the law, to show that gulf. But the gulf that they have found in the law is the gulf between this woman who has broken the law and themselves who keep the law. The law was never about dividing holy from unholy people. It was about showing the divide that exists between a holy God and all of us. They've missed it. One of, one of the most interesting items I came across in reading about this story, uh, one of the New Testament scholars that I, that I really get a lot from, his name is D.A. Carson. He's wrote a great commentary on this, on this book. And here's something he said about the law that Jesus is referring to when Jesus t- when, in Jesus' response to these men who come with this woman. Jesus' response to them is, all right, whoever among you doesn't have sin, you go ahead, throw that stone. When Jesus says that, it's not just clever. It's basically a quote from the law of Moses. What D.A. Carson says is that Jesus is referring to a couple of places in Deuteronomy. Chapter 13, verse 9 is one example. Chapter 17, verse 7 is another one. The law there calls for the witnesses of a crime to throw the stones, to actually execute that sentence. But here's the kicker, and here's what leads us to Jesus' underlying point. The law also insisted that for you to serve as a legitimate witness, you cannot be guilty of the thing you're witnessing. You can't be participants in the crime. And what Jesus is exposing in these Pharisees when he comes at them with his challenge, you throw the first stone if you're not guilty, is he is saying, on the terms of the law you claim to love, you have no right to be this woman's judge and executioner. 
It reminds me of what things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, one of his other sections of teaching, where he, he comes at these people who think that they're innocent, that by their obedience to the law, they have, they have risen above the sort of riffraff of society. And to these, to these hearers who understand the law as a way they prove themselves, Jesus says, you've missed the point. You think because you never slept with another woman you haven't committed adultery, but I tell you, I tell you, that to even think, to even lust after a woman is to be guilty of adultery. I think Jesus is making the same point here. You think that you're innocent of this crime, but that's because you're not thinking. Let the one who is innocent be the first to throw the stone. Somehow their consciences convict them and they realize they they are not as clean as they thought they were. One by one, they turn and walk away. It starts with the older ones. As one put it, they had more to remember. They had a lot more to remember. But one by one, they all, they all turn away. Jesus has exposed the central theme of this story. And that is that sin is not somebody else's problem. Sin is all of our problem. The mindset which comes natural to us, which rejoices in the weaknesses of other people because they make us feel better about ourselves, that mindset that sin and weakness is somebody else's problem is not just offensive to God, it is dangerous to us. Because every time we give into it, we are deceiving ourselves. We are deceiving ourselves and setting ourselves up to be exposed at the day of God's judgment. Because on that day, we will see ourselves in the true light. The light of Him in whom there is no darkness at all. And on that day, nothing will be hidden. This story is meant to shock us into an awareness that we, like the Pharisees, tell ourselves that we're okay. But ultimately, ultimately, there is no one who is innocent. Sin is a universal problem. That's what makes the last layer to this story so sweet. Jesus' response to this woman. One by one, her accusers have turned away and she is left standing all alone with Jesus. Jesus is the one man in the history of the world who has the right to stand before this guilty woman and to judge her. He is the one man who is innocent of what she has done. And this man says to her, where are they? No one condemns you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't overturn the importance of the law, the importance of holiness, even the importance of death as a result of sin. What he does, what he does is lovingly refuse to give this woman the sentence that she deserves. Now that's the story. It's a beautiful one, isn't it? You can see why people wanted this story preserved. Now, whether or not it belongs in John, 
This story has much to teach us about things that are taught all over the New Testament. This story brings to life so much of the beautiful teaching about who Jesus is and what he said. And I want to finish our time this morning by quickly pointing you to three things, three things this story brings to life that are taught all through the New Testament. Three things we can understand and love more fully because we see this story for what it is. Here they are. Here's the first one. Only Jesus has the right to judge and to forgive sin. Only Jesus has the right to judge and to forgive sin. That doesn't sound like good news at first. Let me explain why that is. We've already seen this theme come up in John. John chapter 3 is all about Jesus being given the responsibility by God to come here and to separate light from darkness, to judge what is wrong and to elevate what is right and to give what is right and beautiful and true to all who come to him. Jesus has been sent with the authority to make distinctions between good and evil, between life and death. This story draws on that. Here's here's where we see it. Jesus isn't overturning the law here, right? He says nothing in this story to question the rightness of what Moses had required. That sin would require death is not something Jesus balks at at all. He He doesn't do what you might expect him to do, which is say, that was an old time, you know, when, when law was the only thing that we had, but now we have grace, and so these things don't matter anymore. He never says that. The law and its protection of holiness and its description of how serious a, sin, a thing sin is stands for Jesus. It stands. What he's claiming here is not that the law needs to be overturned. He's claiming that the law and everything that it represents is in his power and authority to minister to others. That he is the judge who applies this law. Somebody had to die. That's what the law called for. Jesus doesn't qualify that here. But here he's letting this woman off the hook. He's saying, you deserve to die based on this law that God made, which is good and right and holy, but I'm not going to condemn you. You will not die. How does he get to say that? What gives him the right to say that? He's essentially saying that she's forgiven. That's a claim to authority. Just like if your car gets stolen, I can't forgive the person who stole it, right? I could say that. I forgive you for stealing my friend's car. But ultimately, it's pretty empty, and it doesn't really apply. You're the only one who has the authority to forgive the person who stole your car. It was your car. You're the one who paid the cost. Similarly, if a judge, if a judge lets off the hook a brutal murderer because he was struck by a spirit of grace and forgiveness, what we would say about that judge is that he is a horrible person. What we would say is that he has got to be himself thrown in prison. What we would say is that he has way overstepped his bounds. The bounds of the law bind him. It's not up to him to say it doesn't matter that this person took the life of someone else. He doesn't have that authority. Jesus is claiming to have that authority here. He's saying the penalty of death stands and I am not going to administer it. How does he get to say that? The story draws us in, in other words, to one of the Bible's main tensions all through the Old Testament and straight into the New is this tension between God's 
holiness that has to be upheld. It has to be demonstrated. The law is a, is a protector of God's holy image. That has to hold true. But here on the other side, we have these beautiful passages, all the Old Testament, about God's love, that he doesn't want to see anyone die, that he wants all to be reconciled to him, that he even breaks into history in the form of Jesus to make that happen. We see this tension between God's holiness and his love, what his holiness requires for sinners and what his love wants to accomplish for sinners. How does that tension get resolved? That tension runs right into this story and into Jesus' claim to the authority to let this woman go despite the fact that she was guilty. Here is what this story helps us get ready to see and to savor. Jesus has the authority to tell this woman, go, neither do I condemn you, because Jesus is the one, ultimately, that she had sinned against. Ultimately, in her adultery, it was a mockery of God and His all-sufficiency, of His plan for her life, of what He had called her to as the good, beautiful, right, and true life. She had sinned against that. She had sinned against Jesus. For Him to have the authority to forgive means He was the one offended, which means he was the one who was going to have to pay the cost that forgiveness always requires. Anytime you want to forgive somebody for something, it means eating it, right? It means you are not going to require of them what they deserve. Forgiveness always comes at a cost, and Jesus is claiming he is the one who will pay that cost. He's setting us up to understand what happens when he goes to the cross. This woman deserved to die. Jesus was willing to die for her, and Jesus is willing to give the benefits of his death to each and every one of you if you will turn to him. He has that authority. That's the first thing. Jesus has the authority to forgive because he's the one offended by our sin. Here's the second thing, much more quickly. This one comes straight from number one. Here's the second truth taught all through the the New Testament that this story helps us to, to see more clearly and savor more fully. The truth is this, when Jesus doesn't condemn you, no one else can either. When Jesus doesn't condemn you, no one else can either. This story calls us to be set free from the fear of the judgment of other people. I love what Paul says in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of of God. He is interceding for us. When When Jesus doesn't condemn you, no one else can either. Here's the last thing. Go and sin no more. The last thing this story points us to, that the whole New Testament teaches, is that we... Pursue holiness. We pursue lives that will be pleasing to God, not so that we can get Him on our side, not as a sort of barter with Him to get some sort of benefit from Him, not to earn His favor, but in response to the grace and mercy and love that He has already showed us freely in Jesus. Jesus has set this woman free, and it's only after He says He doesn't condemn her that He says to her, Go and sin no more. But he does say it. He calls her to live differently. He calls her to live as a response to the beautiful grace that has been shown to her. To put this 
empty way of life, this God, this God offending way of life behind her, not out of fear, but out of joy and love and freedom. Jesus here and all of the New Testament doesn't set us free to live however we want to. That's not the message of grace. It isn't that sin doesn't matter. It's that sin doesn't define you and therefore can't control you. You have been set free. So go and sin no more. Friends, this is a story that is unforgettable when we truly see its details. It brings Jesus to life in a way that is faithful and true. It is a story that calls us to freedom from sin, freedom from the guilt and freedom from the power of the sin that would otherwise define our lives. So, friends, will you claim that freedom? Will you, like this woman, stand before Jesus and receive what he has offered to you? Let's pray together that God will make it so. Our Father, we want to see ourselves through your eyes. We want to see Jesus standing for us, offering us forgiveness that is full and free, calling us to a life that is more than what we've lived, calling us to follow him with the promise that he will be with us and for us and empower us as we live for him. And we want to take up that call. But we know that our own strength is weak, that our own tastes are often satisfied by things that distract us from what you've called us to. And we know that we won't hold on and we won't hold fast and push forward pursuing you and all that you have promised to us unless your spirit continues to draw us, continues to shape us so that we see the world through the eyes Jesus has offered to us. We ask you to give us this sight to shape us into the image of your Son for your name's sake. Amen.